You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, animated animals anxiously anticipating android anecdotes and antics. This is Good Job Brain, your weekly quiz show and offbeat trivia podcast. Today's show is episode 29, and of course, I am your humble host, Karen, and we are your group of loops and snoops who talk about droops and poop. <laughs> I'm Colin. I'm Dana. And I'm Chris. Do you guys know what Bader-Meinhof phenomenon is? Mm. I've, I've heard of it, but I can't recall what exactly it is. So, you know when you learn a fact, or even if you learn like a song, somehow afterwards, it, it almost feels like sometimes you see that fact all the time Oh, okay. I do know this phenomenon. Yeah. yeah and synchronicity. Yeah, or... yeah synchronicity. <laughs> and this is specifically called the Bader-Meinhof phenomenon. When you learn about the obscure fact, or, you know, when you have something in mind, it tends to stick out sure. to you more. Sure. So it's not that all of a sudden, by coincidence, all of these facts are happening because it's fate. It's just it, that your sensitivity to it has been heightened. Yep, and it's always been there, but your brain is now kind of breaking its normal pattern and yeah. picking it up. Yeah, I remember when I was when I was shopping for a car, I got a VW Golf, and at that point, all I saw on the road, it seemed like everybody had a VW Golf. <laughs> everybody had it. <laughs> because it was on my brain, that was all I noticed. For me, it's always songs. I learned about a song, I was like, oh, and then I was like, wow, it's in this trailer, it's used in this commercial, right. it's everywhere. But really, it's not just that my brain is now a little bit smarter. <laughs> and we also have big news last week at the Apple keynote. They've announced the new iPhone 5 along with a new iPod Touch and the new iPod Nano. And we're featured by Apple uh, in iPad Nano promotional material. Yeah, we're on the little Ooh. screen of, Isn't the, that of crazy? the demo That's Nano. Crazy. Yeah, I mean, we just want to thank all of our listeners for making this possible. You guys for making this podcast so popular and listening to it. It has really, really been amazing how much people have picked up on it. Now even Apple is, is starting to take notice. Yeah. So thanks, guys. Yeah. Crazy. You guys pants. are awesome. Thanks so much. Yeah. yeah. And let's jump into our general pop quiz segment. Pop quiz, hotshot! Get your buzzers ready, and I have a random Trivial Pursuit card I found from a box. All right. Here we go. Blue Edge for Geography. What Italian city did the Medici family rule for nearly 300 years? Uh, Florence? Correct. Nice. All right, Pink Wedge. Everybody's going to get this one. What animated series was created by Trey Parker and uh -huh. Matt Stone? Dana. South Park. South Park, correct. Yellow Wedge. Who was the first pontiff to ride in a bubble-top Pope-mobile? Chris. Uh, I believe that was John Paul II. Yes! yes. <laughs> you yes. know your popes. It was after the assassination attempt. Oh. oh. Purple Wedge, what 2000 film starring George Clooney was inspired by Homer's Odyssey? Dana. Oh, oh brother, where are you? <laughs> I was like, oh, I was going to buzz on. you. Yeah. <laughs> Good job, brain. Yeah. Green Wedge, what insect eats ice cream, salami, and a pickle in an Eric Carl picture book? Oh, Dana again. Hungry Little Caterpillar. Caterpillar, yeah. yes. The Very Hungry Caterpillar gets a stomach ache, and finally snacks on a nice green leaf. Orange Wedge, last question. Outfielder Pete Gray played baseball with only one what? 
Uh, one hand. Yes. Wow. Uh, one arm. Uh, yes, yeah. even more. Even more <laughs> specifically. <laughs> yes. Without the hand, the second arm is not going to help you very much in the baseball. The one-armed wonder played wow. for... Oh, man. Uh, the Pirates. St. Louis Browns in 1945. Uh, okay. I wish it were the Pirates, because that would be very piratey. <laughs> Wouldn't it? He'd have a hook. All right. And moving on to this week's topic, uh, I'm going to start off by asking you guys... A really stupid riddle I made up. Oh, okay, perfect. So, hey guys. Hey, Karen. Hi. What do you call machines who like to wear kimonos? Oh. Uh... Robe bots. Uh... <laughs> Good one, Karen. <laughs> Today's topic is on robots. <laughs> this was a triumph. I'm making a note here, huge success. It's hard to overstate my satisfaction. Aperture science. We do what we must because we can. Also, androids, cyborgs, automatons, and more. <laughs> All right. I think a good place to start is with the history of the word robot. There are all these like contentious histories of, oh, this was the first robot. No, this was the first robot. And like, do you count steam-powered mannequins and things like that? But I figured the easiest way to do is like, we'll just start with when the word came into the language. A robot didn't come into the language until the 20s. And it came from... A, 1920s? To the 1920s. And mm-hmm. it came from a play by a Czech playwright named Karl Chopek. So he and his brother, I guess, who were kind of a, a writing team, they coined this term based on a Czech word from Robotnik. In Czech, Robotnik means like slave, basically. Whoa! And and that fit with the theme of the play. So reading reading the summary of this play, this is not going to surprise you guys. So it's about a factory that makes robots to serve people. Now, now hang on, guys. <laughs> I want you, there's a twist. Things it's get out of book. control, and there's a robot rebellion. What? But yeah, so he he coined this term, and it was. It was about a company that produced these sort of synthetic cyborg robots, and they were made to serve people, and it all sort of turned bad. That was where the word kind of entered English, at least, when it came over. So that's where robot comes from, from a Czech word. And then the first robot that kind of broke through a movie, you guys may know, is... Huh. Metropolis. It is Metropolis. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, like, there's the golden robot image on the movie poster. Yeah. yeah. So that was the Fritz Lang movie, and he called it in the movie the Maschinenmensch, which is German uh. for machine human, machine person, even though it was a female. And, you know, the real robot nerds will point out that it's not actually an android because it's a female figure. Do you guys know what the term is for a female figured robot? Gynoid. Gynoid. <laughs> Gynoid. So, right, because Android, yeah, yeah. yeah. So Android really is just a robot that's meant to look like a person or a man, and a gynoid is a robot that's meant to look like a woman. Gynoid. Gynoid, yeah. Yeah. So then moving into sci-fi writing, Isaac Asimov famously came up with his three laws of robotics in the 40s. So we get this one in pub quiz uh, on a couple occasions, and I feel like we've missed it every time we've gotten it. We have. have. (laughs) I think we're going to memorize it this time. Right, right. Number one. The first law of robotics, a robot may not injure a human being. Okay. Or or allow a human being to be injured through inaction. So first, first rule of robotics. First do no harm. Don't, don't hurt people. Got it. Second law of robotics is a robot must obey any orders given by a human. Right. 
unless it conflicts with the first law. And this is where we always got hung up, is we got to remember it's like this unless it conflicts with that. Mm. Okay. Oh, okay. So if I'm a robot owner and I tell the robot, you got to go kill this dude, right. he can't, can't do, do it. it. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. And then the third law of robotics is a robot must protect itself at all times, mm-hmm. unless it conflicts unless it with conflicts the first law the first, or, or the, the second, second law. law. Right. Right. Yeah, right. Okay. Do you know what law zero is? Ah, I did not until I did a little bit of research on What this. is law zero? There's law zero? A few years later, Asimov kind of appended it with the zeroth law, which is... Do you know harm to mankind? Was right. It's, oh, okay. it's like the first one. A robot may not injure mm-hmm. humanity or cause humanity to be injured through inaction. Yeah. And so that was really where all of the famous terms in robotics entered our literature and our stories mm. and our pub quizzes. So there's this term that comes up in the study of robotics and also in 3D animation, and it's called the uncanny valley, uh, which is basically things get pretty real and they get to this point where they're mostly making sense or, or seeming human-like. And but then unsettling. It gets, and, get, and then it gets unsettling. So it's it's playing up on this human ability to make things anthropomorphic. Like the little happy toaster is cute, and if you make it have the big eyes, you, you get more emotionally attached to it, and that increases as you make something look more and more human. And then at a certain point, it looks too human, and right. you start you get really picky about it. Its eyes moving correctly, you get and the twitches on its face. Yeah. And so, like when their eyes don't move correctly, but it looks like a human, it's really unsettling. And so that's mm. called the uncanny valley effect. And um, Masahiro Miro was a roboticist from Japan in the '70s, and he coined that term. And that comes up in 3D animation too. I don't know if you remember the Polar Express. Oh yeah, came out a few years yeah. ago. Yeah, well, the Robert Zemeckis doing all the performance capture movies. Yeah, yeah, Tom Hanks is in that. Right. Yeah. So they're fantastic actors in it and the animation looks great but a lot of critics didn't like it it got panned because their eyes don't move correctly like they're very glassy and so it's unsettling because their faces look real but they're not twitching correctly well it's like you say like like it increases your attachment up to a point like you know you put little googly eyes on a toaster oh it's cute and if you make Mm. it make a little like hee hee sound that's even cuter but then like when you get to like the animatronic baby crawling around (laughs) that's not cute anymore (laughs) even though it's way more realistic it takes a dark turn and in fact it's not just with the way things look actually that you know elvis our song lyrics robot yeah <laughs> i mean he sounds like a robot so it's fun listening to him but did you know elvis has a brother <laughs> <laughs> from the wrong and, side of the track <laughs> and he sounds like a human but when he says the lyrics it makes it makes me feel like he's gonna wear my skin as a jacket like he's gonna, <laughs> like even though like, he sounds more realistic yeah Let's bring them out. So this morning, I, I was listening to Boys to Men, End of the Road, as you do. This is Elvis's brother um, saying the lurks. Girl, you know we belong together. I don't have time for you to be playing with my heart like this. You'll be mine forever, baby. You just wait. <laughs> uh, you'll be mine forever yeah, I don't I, have time for I don't you. like it no I totally see what you mean now because that that sounds more like a human but not enough to convince me that it's a person <laughs> yeah, yeah. whereas Elvis is like he's an 80s robot it's, yeah. lo- it's low fidelity enough that it's not at the creepy level right and I mean like that's right that's where the name Uncanny Valley comes from is like if you basically chart your, your feeling of affinity for the thing against how close it is to human and when you're first start off it's more and more realistic you like it more and more and more and then it reaches a point where it's too realistic and your level of liking it dips 
and you're in that valley of the mm-hmm. uncanny valley, and then when it gets really high fidelity again at the far end, your affinity for it goes back up. So just yeah. that one narrow window, it's like a one percent wrong with the, with it being a human, <laughs> and then so in order to find uncanny valley robots, I just googled creepy robots, <laughs> and there were some really creepy ones that came up. So I'd say they're creepy, but they also serve a purpose. You know, they're they're to simulate human life and maybe they're medical tools and they help people. But man, are they creepy when you watch the videos. <laughs> Nightmare Town? Yeah, we're going to Nightmare Town for a little bit. <laughs> Take the train, everybody. Yeah. All aboard. <laughs> <laughs> Next stop, Insomnia. <laughs> so there's one called Simroid, and it is a training tool for dentists. And so it's basically a lady's head, and she opens oh, her mouth, God, no. and um, she reacts to pain. So, like, if, if a dentist <laughs> pushes too hard on teeth or whatever, she'll say, ow, and, like, it, they could trigger her gag reflex, oh! and, like, make it hurt, and it's nightmares. useful. Serves such a good purpose. If oh, I yeah, were, yeah. A, if it's just because a normal machine, I'd be like, ah, oh, whatever. Eventually, it's going to be second nature to you to not want to provoke that response. Yeah. So it's it's important tool, but woof. And then there's one, <laughs> how to treat people who have the swine flu. And then this robot, like, sweats and cries what? and, like screams out and he dies at a certain point if you don't treat him correctly. Oh, it's like and a Tamagotchi. It... <laughs> yeah, but like this big, Swap big thing with Tamagotchi. <laughs> it's like For a kids. Yeah, it looks like a person though and the skin feels like All clammy. And clammy, oh. yeah. And then there's one called Charles that they were developing as a GPS tool. So they were saying, oh, GPS makes you frustrated and like it doesn't react to you being upset with it or, or being like, I don't, I don't think that this is the right way to go down this yeah. road or whatever. It doesn't change its tone so Charles changes his facial reactions to things and the and the way he gives you instructions based on like how you're doing it, how, how you're driving and how you're talking to him. Is about he that. in a screen or is it like a full life-size head that I put in no, my car? It's, it's actually... It's like the co-pilot in Airplane. Yeah. <laughs> no, it really is. I, I wonder if he could get you through the carpool lane. Like, yeah. <laughs> but, but it's like a guy who sits in your passenger yeah. seat. But he like rea- his face is reacting too to the road, and I'm, I was a little confused about how he works because you shouldn't be watching Charles's face while you're driving. You should really be watching the road. He has cameras in his eyes that track your face and the way your body is like reacting to stuff. <laughs> There's one other kind of robot I found, and it sounds cool. They have these robots called Actroids that they put in hospitals, and they mimic your body language in a subtle way. So they also have camera for eyes. They look like human beings. They look pretty realistic. No, actually, they look like love dolls. But but they move. But like good ones. But, but good ones. <laughs> like the classy ones. ones. Classy yeah, ones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then they, um, the ones sure. you take home to mom. <laughs> <laughs> they, they're there to comfort people who are waiting in the hospital, and they comfort you by mimicking your, your actions back mm. to you when they're talking to you. That wouldn't comfort yeah. me. So <laughs> they said... We interviewed 75 people with, after they experienced these robots and only three or four felt uncomfortable with them. So maybe they're like starting to come out of the uncanny valley with the way they're developed. Those three or four people were there for an appointment to deal with their crippling fear of robots. <laughs> <laughs> while, while you were in the hospital, these robots became our masters. <laughs> you want the good news or the bad news first? <laughs> good news is your hemorrhoids have almost disappeared. <laughs> 
So I was doing some research in this book that I have, and it's called Inside the Robot Kingdom. It's by Frederick L. Schott. He was the guy who wrote one of the first books on Japanese manga in the U.S., and he moved on and he wrote a book about Japan and robots. Uh, and there's some really interesting stuff in here. There's one of the chapters is about, they're called Karakuri Ningyo, which means like automaton dolls. Uh, so I'm not trying to say that mechanical dolls were unique to Japan somehow, or that they originated in the 17th century, but there's something really interesting here is that this is what people call back to as the beginning of Japan's fascination with robots and why Japan even today like makes some of the, mm-hmm. the craziest robots. Yeah, I would designs. say they're one of the leaders right yeah. now. If you read some of the, the early Japanese fiction, they describe tea dolls, which were these dolls that like basically somebody in another room would wind them up and get them ready to go and then set them in front of the sliding door and then slide <laughs> the door open and, you know, press the button. The, the tea doll, which was largely constructed of like wood rather than metal gears and stuff like that. Now there, there were, there were robots at this time like in the 17th century in other countries that were made up with a lot of like low intricate metal cogs because it kind of came out of clock making yeah mm-hmm. like what people did with clock making came into like oh let's make a little person uh but these were um you know very much mostly sort of made out of like wooden cogs and gears and cams and things of that nature and so this thing which looked like a, it looked like a like a two foot tall boy in a kimono holding a tray and he'd wheel the, the tea out um, and stop next to it for me. <laughs> and come to a stop. And then you'd take the tea and drink it. And as soon as you were done drinking the tea, you put the teacup back on the tray. And that action of putting the teacup back on the tray caused the robot to turn around 180 degrees and then slowly wheel out of the room. And so in fiction of the time, these things were described, but eventually they were extremely complicated to make, Mm. incredibly expensive. You know, it was plaything of the very extraordinarily rich. So not many of them were made, and they kind of stopped making them after a while. So the other thing is, look, they were described in fiction, which was passed on. But as we know, as we've known from doing these shows, like a lot of things get described that aren't actually true, you know? There's like a lot medieval, of embellishment. Yeah, right? like medieval torture devices and people making up these old, like, you know, fakey shows of medieval torture devices. It could have been the case that these things were thought of as, oh, they were just mythical. But somebody had written a book called Sketches of Automata and had actually sat down and tried to diagram and draw out how all these things worked. And even though, like, Japanese artists didn't really do the whole perspective thing at the time, tried to do, like, front view, side view, this is what all the parts, this is how they all work together. And so a college professor, for the record, his name is Shoji Tatsukawa, in the 1960s, was reading this old book. Now, again, this old book, there were probably only a couple of copies of it, but he kind of got obsessed with this. At the time, people in Japan thought that automata were only kind of made, like, in Europe. They didn't actually know that Japanese had a native tradition of it. Yeah, had actually done this. I mean, he decided to set his students to the task of recreating one of these things. Like reverse engineering from what the little information they have. Exactly. Um, Did they do it? They did it. And so in the 60s, they were able to recreate using mostly um, 1800s specifications. The one thing they fudged uh, was they had to use like a metal spring instead of some other material that they could not source at that point. Yeah, they were able to recreate this thing and it becomes big national news in the 1960s in Japan. Because it was a purely Japanese invention, there was a little bit of kind of nationalistic like woo behind it. That is typically when you ask like Japanese people like, where did Japan interest in robots come about it was because this college professor 
had gone back, recreated this thing, shown that it worked, and thus proven that Japan had this national history of making, this was this uniquely Japanese robot. Yep. And then propelling them Sparks into... Sparks a lot of interest in the Exactly. And so then you have this interest sparking in robots. And so the guy who is the uh, producer of the Legend of Zelda video game series, when he was in college, which would have been, I'm guessing, in the 70s or, or probably 80s, but when he was in college, he made Karakuri Ningyo. He actually did these in school. I mean, my understanding is they'll do this like if you want to be a computer programmer, like, okay, here's a really old, you know, computer set. So learn about transistors and like learn about logic gates and all that kind of stuff first before you, you know, move on. Mm -hmm. So they haven't had him and his classmates doing that because then if you were to go and make robots, you know, you'd want to start off with, with this thing. Before we move on from this book, there was one other thing. There's a sidebar in one of the early chapters that's what is a robot? And they ask people. Um, a lot of the people who were, this is from the 80s, so they yeah. ask a whole lot of people who were kind of instrumental in the early days of electronic robots to define what a robot is. Uh, Joseph Engelberger, quote, father of the industrial robot, I may not be able to define one, but I know one when I see one. Right. <laughs> um, uh, an advisor to Kawasaki said, a robot is a slave, a mechanical slave that can do very hard work for humans, as told. <gasps> Um, a, a designer at the Bondi Toy Company said, a robot is something that gives boys dreams and bravery. Um, and and there were children, uh, who were Japanese children who responded, what is a robot? Robots like in Star Wars. Um, and another one said, something interesting that transforms. (laughs) So those answers probably just about as good as all the answers given by adults. They're all on the same level of, uh, everybody showing that they, I'm not really, what is a robot? I don't know. So as we said, you know, Japanese doing a lot of cutting edge work in robotics and they're doing a lot of work in robots that can mimic human capabilities. The one that really caught my eye earlier this summer was the article about the robot that plays rock, paper, scissors. Have mm-hmm. you guys seen this one? I haven't, no. So they have developed a machine that never loses <gasps> at rock, paper, scissors. Oh, it just plays with you. It not only plays rock, paper, scissors. Does he get to go second? It never loses. <laughs> the short answer is it cheats. It does it, does it watch? Watch your hand, basically? It watches your hand. The thing oh. is so fast sure. that oh, it can tell in one millisecond yeah. what hand formation what you're, you're going to throw. Yeah. So, if, yeah, if you, yeah. so as you're playing with it, it has a camera. It's basically, it's mm. it's a little simulated hand and a camera. And as you throw your rock, paper, or scissors, in the one millisecond, it can detect what you're going to throw and throw the sign that'll beat it. Oh. And it is so fast that it looks as if it's playing fair, but it's mm. not. It's can reading you what you're throwing. Can you, I know. Like, I like, 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 oh, maybe. Well, you know, like scissors, you can trick it. Rock. Unfortunately, the judge Paper is a scissors. robot, too. <laughs> oh. <laughs> it's robot bias. bias. Oh, man. Uh, you guys talk about Japan and how there were kind of the, the shiny example of old-timey robots. And I would I would say France was, too, a, particularly a Mr. Jacques de Vaucanson. In 1739, he was like an artist and tinker, and he created a lot of automatons. Mm. And one of his most famous creations is called the duck so this mm-hmm. is an automaton robot duck it's gorgeous it's meticulous it's just a, a marvel uh marvel in engineering <laughs> at that time and the cutting edge of duck robotics yes <laughs> a marvel of the wonder age in each wing alone there are over 400 moving parts in one wow. wing this duck robot can uh, flap its wings it could move it could even look like it's drinking water. It could even eat. It could even eat grain pellets. Like it would gobble it up uh-huh. and would go into the robot. Uh-huh. And it does one 
uh, additional thing, and yep, you've guessed it. Uh, it poops. It even poops. <laughs> now, I need some details here. When, when you say it poops, what do you mean by that? It is the illusion of pooping. Ah. So, so Vaucanson, uh, one of the most brilliant engineers of that at that time, spent his time and energy trying to simulate the digestive tract of ducks. And so he didn't really quite make it there because he was really trying to make as real as it can get from a robot duck. I can't Did believe he... it's not duck poop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Did he get to the point where he sewed three ducks together into one chain? No. Oh, Duckapede is a little bit, bit of fudging. So the duck would eat the pellet and then it gets hidden in a canister. Uh-huh. And then there's another canister <laughs> that holds a pre-mixed duck poop, duck poop and it comes out from... <laughs> The duck butt. There's a little canister duck somewhere else. A real duck. (laughs) You know, a lot of these robots were kind of for entertainment, and people would kind of sit around this robot contraption and watch this duck eat grains and then poop it out. And you know, he was really trying to to design a, a fully digesting system, but he never got there. And even Voltaire, Mr. Voltaire, he said he saw the duck poop in action. He said, without the duck of Vaucanson. You will have nothing to remind you the glory of France. <laughs> I like you, how he yeah. focused on the poop and not the flying. Like, yeah. you know, he like spends a lot, 400 little pieces in each wing and it just opens its wings. And yep, goes, it just oh, we got that. machines that fly. <laughs> yeah. We got those. We don't have machines we need that poop. It, we need it to like make real poop organic. <laughs> right. Hey. It's a way of understanding the world around you or the poop, world poop, inside you. Poop colored yeah. glasses. <laughs> <laughs> Seeing the world through brown colored glasses. <laughs> Wow. Sorry. Colin just has the grossed out look on his face. Sorry, Colin. Yeah. <laughs> when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Anyways, uh, let's take a quick break from robots and debut a new segment that we're going to call the Brainiacs Book Club, inspired by our sponsor Audible, but also inspired by a lot of our listeners. People often ask us, you know, where do we get our crazy stories and facts? And people ask us if there are any books or resources that we read to help us stay sharp. And here are some of our recommendations. Uh, well, I mean, in terms of secret histories and trivia in a fun way, for me, uh, my favorite author is Bill Bryson. Yes. And, and I have absolutely mentioned him on the show before. Uh, he is kind of like the grandpapa of trivia. I think that's true. I think that's yeah. a good way to put it. Yeah, in a grandpapa. relatable story. He turns trivia in, in, into stories. So his book, uh, A Short History of Nearly Everything, is almost exactly what the title <laughs> says. He starts with the it's origin of the universe yeah. and comes all the way up through 
modern day living and just entertaining, funny, and yeah, just chock full of trivia. It's great stuff. So I would say the grandpapa of zombie apocalypse survival <laughs> fiction is Max Brooks. Uh, and I listened to World War Z from Audible. I read the book and then I loved it so much. I wanted to listen to it. If you think about what you would do if the zombies came and I've, after listening to it, I've reconciled with myself that I'll probably like go pretty early. (laughs) (laughs) But you've come to peace with that. I I, I would try to like get bit and then like rest somewhere while I became a zombie. I don't want to be torn apart. It was was graphic (laughs) and it was, it was illuminating. But then you hope that you would be a good zombie. Well, you know, I mean, not a good zombie, but like a successful zombie. Like infect many people. Oh, not like a zombie with a heart of gold. No, no, no. You want to be like a boss, boss level zombie. A strategist zombie. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Middle management zombie. Right. So listen to this book if you want to learn how to be the boss zombie. When the, when the you don't want to happens. be shovel fodder, basically. Yeah. I, I actually just finished rereading uh, the book Wise Guy, which is, uh, we've, I mean, oh, uh, yeah. everybody's seen the movie Goodfellas. Uh, but what you don't know about Goodfellas until you read the book Wise Guy is that so much of the dialogue... All of Henry Hill's descriptions of events that occurred and life in the in the mob that Ray Liotta does such a good job of performing, it is verbatim yeah. out of Wise Guy. And yeah. Wise Guy just pulls verbatim out of the interviews that the author Nick Pileggi did with Henry Hill, the the gangster. So much. I mean, there there's a there's a couple little things in the movie where they either embellished or added on to it, but even in those cases, it's taken from real life events. It's like so so many, so many movies that are quote unquote based on a true story are in- extremely Stretch. loosely based yep. on that true story. But man, the amount of things that were just taken straight out of Wise Guy dialogue that was just taken directly out of this book is fascinating. So you've got, if you like Goodfellas, do yourself a favor, go read Wise Guy, or in this case, listen to it. Uh, so my recommendation, a lot of people can tell you, and, and my dentist can tell you that I love candy and I love sweets <laughs> and. One of my favorite books of all time is Candy Freak uh, by an author called Steve Almond. And his last name really is Almond. It's mm. not like a rock star name or anything. And he is also a big fan of candy. In Candy Freak, he kind of documents the origins and kind of the history of American local candies. Mm. He's also a really good storyteller. Mm-hmm. And he's a funny guy. So you're getting a lot of these facts, but also with a lot of anecdotes and interviews with people that are just really, really addictive in nature. So did it make you eat more candy? It did. <laughs> it did. Mm-hmm. After reading the book, I went online and I just ordered a whole bunch of candy that he talked about in his book. So these books are all available as audiobooks on Audible. So if you want to give it a try, go to audiblepodcast.com slash goodjobbrain for your free audiobook download. All right, let's jump back into robots. And we talked about real robots or robots in history. Let's talk about some uh, fictional robots. That was Astro Boy, of course. Not a lot of people know that he's a robot. All right. Well, I think in terms of fictional robots, we can all agree that two of the most recognizable robots are from 
Batteries not included. <laughs> that couches. and Star Wars. Yes. Uh, oh, yes. No wonder yes. it all lit up. Yes, it's like, yes. like a Christmas tree over here. <laughs> yes. Any Wars. excuse to talk about Star Wars. So without getting too geeky and too in-universe, uh, I mean, we, we're all familiar with R2-D2 and C-3PO, right? Yes. Okay. Yes. Everyone knows R2, the short little squat one, and C-3PO, the tall golden one. Lucas has talked a lot about his inspiration. You know, he's a big cinephile. A lot of the things that inspired Star Wars came from other movies like westerns or World War II gunfights Mm -hmm. for the X-Wing battles Mm -hmm. the droids he has said several times uh, were inspired by uh, two characters in a Kurosawa film The Hidden Fortress and in that movie uh, which is a story about a princess and a general on their adventures to try and you know (laughs) save the day they're accompanied by two peasants and the peasants in the Hidden Fortress are kind of the comic relief. And they're sort of bumbling and sometimes wise without meaning to be wise. But the thing that Lucas says he liked about him is that you have these two lowly characters and the whole story is told through their eyes. Mm. And so that's what he wanted to do with Star Wars. And so if you think about it, all like of... kind of stuck in all the middle of, the of sto- all this like stuff. Right. Rosencrantz like and Guildenstern. Yeah, a lot like yeah. Rosencrantz. Yeah, you, they're sort of witness to these grand things going on around them. Interesting. And so in the Star Wars saga, the, the R2-D2 and C-3PO, those are the main POV characters. Everything that takes place, they are involved somehow. They're in one of the scenes. It's sort of shown... We follow their travels. That is so cool! Uh, Which one are you? Hmm... I think you're R2. I think I'm R2. I think I'm an R2, yeah. I think I might be (laughs) C-3PO. You know, what's funny, he talks about, uh, you know, and he really wanted to kind of pick, like, the perfect odd couple. So, like, they're studying contrast. You know, one is short and squat Mm -hmm. and doesn't look very human. One is tall and thin and elegant and is very human. Right, R2-D2 is, like, as far from human as you can possibly get. Right, right. He doesn't use language. Yeah, there's no discernible face. Mm -hmm. And it's funny. I mean, ironically, he might be the one that most people feel more Mm -hmm. attached to. Yeah, Yeah. Even though he's not the one Mm -hmm. whose job Bob is to well, interface with humans. As, yeah. as we know, kind of prissy, a little bit of a jerk. You know, we talked earlier about Metropolis. He was directly inspired by the golden android of yeah, Metropolis for C-3PO. Oh, yeah, sure, yeah, sure, yeah. It is, is not a coincidence. So there's just some interesting stories about actually creating these movies with these, because there were people inside there. Mm-hmm. So, you know, a lot of people, obviously, you know, there was a person inside C-3PO. Maybe not as many people realize there was a person inside the R2-D2 robot as well. He was a little person. He was oh. three foot eight, and he fit inside R2-D2. Kenny Baker is his name. And Did he drive it? Well, so when they made the movies, there were actually two R2-D2s. There was a remote-controlled one that was fully uh, radio-controlled, and then there was the one that Kenny Baker would get inside. And the way you can tell is, if you see the R2-D2 with three legs, that's the remote-controlled one. So they had had to give it three legs for stability so they could drive it around. Huh. And if you see the R2-D2 with two legs, Kenny Baker's inside there. They did most of the desert scenes in the first Star Wars movie in Tunisia, but they had to come back and do some pickup shots at the end for coverage and they couldn't fly all the way back to Tunisia so they filmed them in Death Valley in California Mm -hmm. and as they were filming they were getting interference from some of the nearby Air Force Base and there were a couple occasions when R2-D2's controls actually just went haywire and he would start going off in directions on his own because they were getting interference right so they had to R2 come back yeah R2 come back I mean especially when you're filming near rocks and cliffs and things like that (laughs) (laughs) I just built that thing I've only got two of them. He just drove it off the cliff. Thelma <laughs> <laughs> <Thelman> Louise did. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Freedom. But having to be inside these costumes in the middle of the heat.
heat as oh well was just a nightmare for these guys. Yeah, just being surrounded by metal in the hundred degree heat. You know, for me, the the droids in Star Wars are are hands down the most the most lasting image, the most charming part. Yeah, and they're not the humans. All right, I have a robot character quiz that I made for you guys. All right, and I'm sure you guys will get a lot of these. All right, number one, get your buzzers ready. Actor Steve Gutenberg traded in his police academy uniform for a lab coat to play a PhD inventor in this movie about a particular robot officially named Saint Number Five. What movie? <laughs> oh, Chris. Uh, short Circuit. And Saint Number Five, lovingly called Johnny Five. Johnny Five. Uh, number Five is alive. Bonus question for everybody. There's a famous scene where Johnny Five is dancing to a movie that's playing on TV. What movie was he watching? Mm, was it Flashdance? Footloose. Mm. It is a dance movie because he's dancing to it. The song was More Than a Woman. Oh, uh, Saturday Night Fever. Yes, Saturday <laughs> Night Fever. Number two. The first half of this beloved robot movie is described to be an homage to the Charlie Chaplin era of silent films. Is oh, it Wally? Yes, uh, it is Wally. Bonus question for everybody. Similar to Johnny Five and Short Circuit, there's a famous scene in Wally where Wally is dancing to a movie that's playing on a TV screen. What movie was he watching? Chris. Hello, Dolly. Correct. Hello, Dolly. Okay, number three. What robot lives in an industrial complex along with Rusty, Brock, Hank, and Dean? Oh, crap. It's on the Venture Brothers. Yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah. the Venture Brothers is the show. Yeah. It's the skinny blue one. Oh, my What's God. Why don't I know his name? Um... <laughs> It's Helper. 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 Yeah. Right. Yeah. Oh, Helper is oh. the Venture family personal <laughs> robot. Number four. Who is, quote, a girl unlike other girls? She's a miracle, and I grant you she'll enchant you at her sight. Dana. It's Vicky from Small Wonder. Vicky, yes. From the TV show Small Wonder. And that was an acronym, right? It was like V I K. Voice, I believe it was like voice or... input. Uh, child, oh, no, no. Child, child yeah. identicant. Yes, yeah. yes. All right, number five. This robot from a 1968 classic is listed as the 13th greatest film villain by the American Film Institute. I need the robot name. Listed as the 13th oh. greatest film villain. Is it HAL? Yes, correct. Uh, HAL 9000. Uh, 2001, 2001 Space Odyssey. Space Odyssey. Yep. I don't know if I would count him as a robot. That might just be my interpretation. I think he's more like a ship. A computer yeah. program. Yeah, he's like a sentient computer program. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh. All right, number six. Iron Man's butler had several reincarnations in comics, cartoons, and most recently and famously, he was represented as an artificial intelligence system. In the Iron Man movies, what is his name? <laughs> Jeffrey. Close. Oh God. Close. Joffrey. It's so on the jo tip of Joffrey. <laughs> Joffrey Baratheon. Um, <laughs> the what worst is, robot. Oh, man. What, what is it is Jarvis. Jarvis. Uh, That's right. I was. I wanted to say Jeeves, but I know yeah. that wasn't it. Okay, Jarvis. Right. So 
There's a theme among all the robots I I had in my quiz. Can you think of the theme? What is the common theme of all of the robots I've mentioned? Is it that they're all acronym names? Yes, uh, they are all acronym names. I, yeah, I don't know where that came from. Uh, the the use of an acronym that spells out the name of a person. Are you going to tell us? There is a trope, a common you know TV yeah, and film yeah. trope that usually robots are named after. Their function, Bender from Futurama, he's a bending robot, Bender. These names that with acronyms, they're normal names, but they have a function in the acronym. And so Johnny Five, the official name is the Saint Robot. And I don't know if you guys remember, Johnny Five was a robot designed for Cold War. the military, yeah, Yeah. it was a military robot, I remember that. He's Saint Number Five, there are five Saint Robots, Strategic, Artificially Intelligent, Nuclear transport. Uh, Do you guys know what Wally stands for? Um, it's 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 something about loading. It's like waste something something oh, loader. Yeah, e, yeah. e class. He's waste allocation load lifter. Uh, Earth. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. His robot girlfriend Eve in the movie is extraterrestrial vegetation evaluator, which is its function, right? Right. And helper is humanoid electric lab partner robot. And Vicky, like you guys said, is voice input child identikint. Mm. And Hal, this one's a, a I, little bit uh, of a stretch. Is it? Is it a heuristic algorithmic logic? Yes, a heuristically programmed algorithmic computer. Mm-hmm. And Jarvis, Jarvis is based on a real character. Edwin Jarvis was his name. But mm. they actually did have a an unofficial backronym, which is... Just a really very intelligent system. <laughs> nice. So there you go. That's we love good. robots with acronym I names. Think, I think that's why they named them that. So people would go, ha, ha, ha. Nice. <laughs> it's very Tony Stark. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are you looking for a podcast that your whole family can enjoy that asks the deep philosophical questions like, do trees fart? If you are, then you'll love Tumble, a science podcast for kids. I'm Lindsay. And I'm Marshall. Join us as we explore stories of science discovery, from butts to animals, dinosaurs, astronomy, and everything in between. You'll love these stories, and you'll learn something new. Find and follow Tumble Science Podcast for Kids wherever you get your podcasts, or at sciencepodcastforkids.com. Well, speaking of forced names, uh, forced <laughs> acronyms for robots. What? This was a setup? <laughs> uh, we uh, have a visit from an old friend here, Elvis. Yay! Yay! Long time no see. It has. I don't think he's made an appearance since we actually officially named him. Yep. What, yeah. And what does that stand for again? It, of course, Chris, stands for Electronic Lyrical Vocal Interface System. <laughs> Not forced at all. <laughs> <laughs> So, our friend Elvis is going to sing, and by sing I mean speak aloud. As, as best he can. Yes. Yeah. Uh, opening lines of famous songs. Famous Yay! Famous rock or pop songs. And your guy's job will be to name the song. To make it a little bit extra special, there is a theme oh. tying together all of these songs. Elvis is getting smarter. All right. First song. Get your buzzers ready. Elvis. Uh-huh. I'm so in love with you. Whatever you want to do, it's alright with me, cause you make me feel so brand new. You guys are all scanning. I think that was Karen. Is it Al Green? Yes, uh, yes, it is Let's Stay Together. Let's Stay Together by Al Green. By the Reverend Al Green, that's right. Alright, second song. <laughs> Wait, 
Elvis is hitting on me. Not in a creepy way, though. Not in a creepy okay, way. Yeah. In a ador adoring way. I took my baby on a Saturday bang. Boy, is that girl with you? Yes, we're one and the same. Now I believe in miracles, and a miracle has happened tonight. Chris. Uh, that was Michael Jackson's Black or White. That was Michael uh, Jackson's Black or White. Now, you don't you don't want the theme yet, right? Well, you can work on it. I, you know, I'm not surprised if you've pieced it together. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We'll, ask, we'll ask at the end. We'll ask okay. at the All end. Right. All right. Uh, the third song. Here we go. We started living in an old house. My ma gave birth and we were checking it out. It was a baby boy, so we bought him a toy. I don't know. Mm, it is the White Stripes, hardest button to button. Oh, hardest button button. <laughs> See, and you've heard it before, and mm -hmm. yet... Yes, as I soon just, as you hear it, it's, ah! It's when you take all the melody out of it, it's hard. All right, here we go, next one. There must be something in the way I feel that she don't want me to feel. The stare she bears cut me. I don't care. You see, so what if I bleed? <laughs> it is uh, Could Have Lied by the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Oh. All right, last one, guys. Let's, let's close it out here. I guess I should have known by the way you parked your car sideways that it wouldn't last. <laughs> see? You're the kind of person that believes in making out once. Love them and leave them fast. <laughs> Dana, little Red Corvette. It is Little Red Corvette <laughs> by Prince. <laughs> That's my go-to karaoke song. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think Chris uh, clued into the theme a little early. Would you care to uh, yeah, let, let us all know one. what it is? I, I believe it's Colors. It is yeah. Colors. Yeah. Uh, little Red Corvette by Prince. Mm -hmm. Could Have Lied by Red Hot Chili Peppers. Al Green, Black or White by Michael Jackson, and White Stripes. I was looking for Pink Floyd, too. I was looking was... for a Deep Blue something. <laughs> oh, that's good. Oh, that like, would be a good one. Deep Blue something, Breakfast at That would be a good yeah. one. Thanks, oh. Elvis. Thanks, Thanks Elvis. Elvis. You're the best. Well, guys, I know that we all love Elvis, but I actually prepared a music musical quiz. A real uh, music quiz. Yeah, round. exactly. <laughs> uh, but something, uh, something is kind of going wrong with this. Uh, uh, so uh, why don't you, why don't you go ahead and listen, uh, to this music quiz and, uh, if anything weird happens, um, we'll just, okay. we'll just work through it. How's that sound? Sounds good. Right. I'll just, I'll play the file here. Like a team. She got a run in the stock of the length of an equator I think it should be my wife She got a face and a lock and a scrap And ten around a finger dig in the bone And I'm going to lose the one Are you receiving me? Hello? Good Greetings, you bumbling bundle of broadcasting blowhards This is Carmen San Mateo and I'm sorry to tell you that I have stolen your precious little quiz. In fact, I'm handing it off right now to one of my top agents, Mama Cass Torium. And you'll never be able to track us down. <laughs> sorry I can't stay longer. I've got to catch a train. Ciao. what was going wrong. <laughs> Carmen San Mateo. Has stolen our quiz. Oh, no. And we got to figure out where she is. Uh, so what did she say? She's getting on a train. So she's getting on a train. Mm. And then there was music. I mean, that music actually sounded pretty familiar, too. Mm. Uh -oh. I can't figure it out, you guys. We are going to have to turn this one over to the listeners. Oh, yeah. 
All right, well, hopefully you have all the clues that you need. If you know where Carmen San Mateo and the vile Mama Castorium <laughs> have taken our musical quiz, maybe you should write in and tell us. You can email us at gjb.podcast at gmail.com if you think you have the answer. I want to get back to that music quiz because I need the answer to the, to the song. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it doesn't matter now. Oh, man. Well... That's a weird way to end our show, but that's our show. Thank you <laughs> for joining me, and thank you guys, listeners, for listening. Hope you guys learned a lot about pooping duck robots and <laughs> rock, scissor, paper robots and Uncanny Valley and our new villain, Carmen San Mateo. Yeah. Man, fair use, people. Totally not, yeah. Parody, to- guys. Completely yeah. not who you're thinking Totally about. a satire. Don't worry about it. <laughs> you can find us on Zoom Marketplace, on iTunes, on Stitcher, and also on our website, which is goodjobbrain.com. And we'll see you guys next week. Bye. Bye. all trivia nerds Brittany here and i host the family road trip trivia podcast with my best friend meredith is your next car ride looking like a snooze fest <laughs> we've got the cure three rounds of awesome trivia every week harry potter disney science sports you name it no more silent car troubles the family road trip trivia podcast connect laugh and learn with your kids big and small <laughs> New episodes every week, wherever you get your podcasts. Search for the Family Road Trip Trivia Podcast.